The following message by Dr. Matt Thornton is part of a series through the life of Christ. Jesus Christ only lived 33 years on earth and died a few miles from where he was born. Yet his life and death changed the world. Has he changed you? Join us on this journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as we follow the Lord from his birth to his resurrection, preaching some of the most amazing events recorded in Scripture. You can find John chapter 18 in your Bible as well as Matthew 26. John 18 and Matthew 26, and we'll read from both of these uh, sections of Scripture this morning. And one of our earliest messages in this series through Jesus' life, uh, just when his ministry was beginning, John the Baptist identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by referring to Jesus as a lamb, John was referencing the Passover feast. It was an annual memorial that began way back in the Old Testament, the night that God rescued the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. As the final act of judgment upon Egypt and her false gods, the true God promised to execute all the firstborn in the land that night. But God frequently mingles judgment with mercy. And so any household that believed God and would obey him by killing an innocent lamb and wiping or smearing the blood around the doorposts of their house, when the destroyer came through Egypt that night, he would see the blood and pass over that house, hence the name of the feast, Passover. That house would be spared. This became the most important feast in Israel, even in the first century when Jesus lived. It was the most important feast. And months earlier, they began to prepare for the Passover. Roads and bridges were repaired to make it easier to travel to Jerusalem. I won't make any jokes about how the highway department in Arkansas needs to look at ancient Israel, about how we fix the roads and things like that. I would never joke about that. They would whitewash sepulchers. To make, to make them stand out so that you wouldn't accidentally touch a grave, touch a tomb and be defiled where you were originally unclean. Families and households began to just thoroughly cleanse their utensils. They began to remove all the leaven from their homes and finally they would select their lamb for sacrifice. And the lamb had to be spotless without blemish. There was so much that was done in Jerusalem and in Israel to prepare for the Passover each year. But that year was the most important Passover ever. And God had been preparing things for the true Passover lamb to be sacrificed. This morning, we're going to see how Jesus Christ, God's true Passover lamb, was betrayed, how he was arrested, and how he was put on trial, and yet through all this, proven to be blameless. And that's sort of the focus. It's hard to get a focus when you're covering so much material But if you grabbed a bulletin, our focus sentence is the perfect lamb of God submitted to an unfair arrest and unjust trials because he was your only hope. I want you to look at John 18, just a small bit more background before we read the first three verses. For quite some time, the Jewish religious leaders had searched for ways to kill Jesus. They hated him deeply, but they decided to wait until Passover season was finished. Because even though they hated him, Jesus was popular among the regular people, among the common people, and so they feared that arresting him might cause an uproar. So they resigned to wait. 
until Judas struck a deal to betray him into their hands for 30 pieces of silver. So let's look at the first three verses of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is on the final night of Jesus' life, just after he finished what we call the final discourse. Brother Connor preached some of that last week. Judas has left, and Jesus and the eleven walked across the Kidron Valley. They walk up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus agonized in prayer about what awaited him. Luke recorded that his sweat was like blood dripping from his skin. And you can look it up. There's a few different names for this medical condition. And it occurs when, when your capillaries around your, your sweat glands rupture and causes your sweat to be mingled with blood. Sometimes this is caused by extreme stress. We cannot imagine the pressure that Jesus Christ felt that night, knowing what he would face, knowing he was our only hope. And one brief application I want you to consider is that stress and pressure are not sinful. The question becomes how you deal with them. And Jesus faced this pressure that we can only imagine, not by worrying about it, but by praying about it. He prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the Son of God, is pouring his heart out to the Father. And while he's doing this, Judas, the betrayer, is gathering a mob to come and arrest him. Judas knew that Jesus and the disciples would be in this garden because it was a frequent meeting place for them. And I used to have in my mind this picture of, of Judas and this small, stealthy group of ninjas that swooped in and grabbed Jesus before anybody knew what was happening. But that's not the case. If you look in verse 3, we're told that Judas secured a band of soldiers. And this word band is officially the word for a Roman cohort, which was 600 soldiers. Now, even if the full cohort didn't go that night, but only a group from within the cohort went to arrest Jesus, you still have a lot of soldiers, plus the guards and the police officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The point is that this was a mob of hundreds of people. The synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all refer to this group as a great multitude. They sent an army to arrest one man. He'd slipped away before, right? They were not going to let that happen again. So Jesus is agonizing in prayer. He is on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he can easily look across the Kidron Valley to the city gates of Jerusalem and see the gate where this mob would have left from. And he could see the torches and their lanterns trek across the ravine and grow brighter and larger and larger, but he's not surprised by this, is he? I want you to see in the next few verses that Jesus is the one in control, not the mob. He doesn't run back to Bethany. 
He doesn't hide among the olive trees. I want you to notice verse four. Notice what he did. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Did you catch that? Sure, Judas is betraying him, but he came forward. And John even told us why. It was because he knew what would happen if he did. Jesus knew that if he stepped forward that night, it would lead to an unfair arrest, unjust trials, unwarranted pain, and an undeserved crucifixion, and so he did it. He stepped forward because it was his father's will. Because he was your only hope, because he loved you and me enough to meet the mob that night. He was bold enough to make the first move. He asked them, who are you looking for? Notice what happened when he did that. Look at verse five and six. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This phrase, I am he, he is added for English clarity. Your Bible may indicate that, but it's not necessary. Quite literally, Jesus just said, I am, or even I myself am. And it did identify him, but it was much more than him just raising his hand saying, that's me, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're looking for. This phrase, I am, is the very name of God that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And it, it speaks to God's self-existing nature, which means God doesn't need anyone or anything else to be. He just is. We all need other people. We need other things to live. I wouldn't be here without my parents. They wouldn't be here without their parents. None of us would be here without God, but God just is. He is the I am, and Jesus Christ is the I am clothed in flesh. So this was a lot more than Jesus just raising his hand. This was a claim of being divine, and when Jesus revealed himself to the mob the same way God revealed himself to, the Moses, uh, to Moses at the bush, they drew back and fell to the ground. Hundreds were sent to arrest him, but they couldn't even stand in his presence. Just the identification of Jesus was more powerful than all their swords. His one, his one phrase carried more authority than all the chief priest's orders. It's gonna be tough to arrest a man who can knock you down with his voice. It's pretty clear who's in control that night. Notice verse seven through nine. Jesus is gonna prove his control over the situation even more by protecting his disciples. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I lost none. Have you ever heard a prisoner given the orders? Happened here. In verse eight, let these men go. It may sound like a polite request in English, but it was not. It was a command. 
You could say, you must let these men go. If I'm the one you've been sent to arrest, you have to let these men go. Even during his arrest, Jesus is in charge. He's the one giving the commands, issuing the orders, and he's demonstrating for his men his love and care and his ability to protect them. But look at verse 10 and 11. Ironically, Peter tried to step up and protect him. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Poor Peter, right? No doubt he felt this was his opportunity to back up all of his braggadocious comments earlier that night. This was his chance to prove his loyalty. But when we truly understand the scene, what was that fisherman going to do against hundreds of soldiers? He's apparently not too good with the sword or not too quick because he just cuts off Malchus's ear. Pretty sure he was aiming for his head, but he wasn't quick enough. <laughs> and Luke adds the incredible detail that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Jesus reversed the damage that Peter's dagger created. And then he rebuked Peter. Fighting this mob was fighting against the will of God. Jesus didn't need Peter's protection. Jesus had just proven that he could protect Peter. Matthew adds that Jesus told Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to the Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? If Jesus were not arrested, how would he be crucified for our sins? How would he drink the cup that the Father gave him to drink? So notice verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, John doesn't specifically tell us this, but Jesus submitted to that arrest. If Jesus were not willing they could not have touched him. Again, it's tough to arrest a man who can knock you down with his voice. Tough to arrest a man who has the power to heal people. Earlier in John's gospel, though, Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. It's already very, very late that night. And throughout the rest of the night and into the following morning, after his arrest, Jesus will stand trial before multiple groups of people. The very first trial he faced was in front of the former high priest, a man named Annas, who was the father-in-law of the actual high priest during the time. Look at verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now skip to verse 19. We'll give Peter a break and we'll skip through his denials this morning. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
The reason they brought Jesus to Annas, even though Caiaphas was technically the high priest, was because Annas was sort of a godfather, patriarchal type figure. We might use the term high priest emeritus. He was the high priest in the past, but people still viewed him as the high priest, even though Caiaphas technically held the office. After Annas served, five of his sons, plus his son-in-law, all served as the high priest. So he was sort of this power behind the power type figure. He had so much influence, so much intimidation in ancient Israel that this was sort of a pretrial. Annas would be able to break down this Nazarene before sending him to Caiaphas and make things a lot easier for Caiaphas. And so this intimidating former high priest, he questioned Jesus about two things, his disciples and his doctrine. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say a single word about his disciples? He's still protecting them. He doesn't say a word about those men. But he does answer about his doctrine in a way. He said in verse 20, I have said nothing in secret. That didn't mean that Jesus never had an intimate conversation with someone, that he never taught his disciples privately or anything like that. But it meant that he never said one thing in public and then changed his message in private. He didn't say one thing to the masses and one thing to his men in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus once again issued a command. Ask those who heard me. You've got the defendant telling the judge what to do. One of the officers felt that Jesus was disrespecting Annas. So he slapped him or punched him probably across the face. Isn't that irony so sad there? That this officer is so bent on standing up for the authority of a man who technically holds no position anymore that he misses the fact that his creator is standing right in front of him and he punches the son of God to stand up for the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Jesus had not disrespected Annas or Caiaphas or the Jewish courts or anyone else. What Jesus was probably doing was pointing out in a very calm manner the illegal nature of this trial. Not only were trials at night considered illegal, but it was also wrong to question the defendant without witnesses. Doesn't that make verse 21 come alive? Why are you asking me? Shouldn't you be asking others? Shouldn't there be witnesses here? Why don't you ask all those that heard me teach what my teaching was about? And so Jesus did not disrespect anyone, nor did he incriminate himself. In short, he was perfect. He acted strong, calm, well within his rights. And since Annas could see he was making no progress, he just sent him on to Caiaphas because Caiaphas would be the one to bring the official case to Rome anyway. So for this trial in front of Caiaphas, turn to Matthew chapter 26. John doesn't record this second Jewish trial for us. Matthew 26. And for time's sake, I'll probably just read this section and only make just a few preaching comments about it and we'll turn back to John, but... Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had uh, seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. It seems like now there are a little bit more of the elders and the members of the Sanhedrin that are gathering now. Verse 58, and Peter was following him at a distance. 
As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. I wonder if Jesus is questioning about, you need to ask witnesses if that's what prompted them to start bringing in these false witnesses now for the second Jewish trial. So the end of verse 60, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Skip down to chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. You can turn back to John uh, 18 now. After this complete farce of a trial in which false witnesses don't agree, false witnesses cannot condemn Jesus, they falsely condemn him for speaking blasphemy. Then they mock Jesus, they beat him, they spit on him, and they held him as prisoner throughout the night until the very early morning hours when they bound him once again and led him to the Roman governor Pilate. Look at verse 28 in John 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So around sunrise on this probably cool spring morning in Israel, this group of Jewish leaders led by Caiaphas brought their prisoner who they have already sentenced they have already mistreated, already disrespected, already beaten, and already sentenced to death. They bring him to Pilate so that he will just simply rubber stamp what they've already said. But when they arrived at his palace, they just stopped. They dare not cross the threshold into a Gentile's residence because that would have made them ritually unclean and unfit to observe the Passover. They were far too holy to make that silly mistake. Is that not ridiculous? The actions of these religious leaders are probably the most hypocritical determinations of all time. They have broken and disregarded all kinds of laws that night. They have no problem plotting the, innocent, uh, the murder of an innocent man, but they are careful not to cross the threshold into a Gentile's residence because that would make them unclean. No wonder Jesus called them hypocrites. 
Those men not entering Pilate's palace meant about as much to God as a bank robber tithing out of what he stole. Since they wouldn't go in, Pilate came out. Look at verse 29 through 31. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered to him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This game of cat and mouse that begins between Pilate and the Jewish leaders is interesting, and we need some history behind it. Pretty soon after Pilate became governor of Judea, the Jews made him look like an absolute fool by calling his bluff one time when he brought in Roman standards Roman standards and flags and banners into Jerusalem that, that bore images that were very revolting to the Jews. And the Jews protested and said, take them down. He threatened to kill the protesters, but ended up backing off and not doing that. And so the Jewish protest worked and Pilate looked sheepish. Later, there was more tension that was created when Pilate used money from the temple treasury to build aqueducts in Jerusalem. This time, there were more than 10,000 Jews that gathered in protest of this misuse of sacred funds. But Pilate would not be made a fool again. He ordered Roman soldiers to dress in disguise and, and disperse throughout this crowd. And when Pilate gave the orders, these undercover Roman soldiers massacred Jews. News of these protests and this hostility and this tension reached the ears of Emperor Tiberius in Rome, who then threatened to remove Pilate from his post if he could not keep the peace. All of that backstory makes this trial of Jesus so interesting because we will see that Pilate will find no fault in Jesus. He's not guilty of anything. And yet Pilate knows that sometimes he still has to give the Jews what they want in order to keep the peace so that he doesn't lose his job. But he still loved toying with the Jews. There was, there was no love lost between them. And so when they, he stepped out to meet them that morning by asking what charges they brought against Jesus, he was essentially opening up a new trial. He didn't say, what do you want me to do? He said, what are the charges? That's not what they expected. And they replied with a non-answer, didn't they? He's a malefactor. He's a bad guy. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't a bad guy. And so Pilate, if they're going to play like that, he will too. He said, look, if you're going to do that, just take him, y'all judge him. I'm not going to play that game. But they quickly reminded him that they did not have authority to exercise capital punishment. They were seeking the death penalty. Rome allowed people groups that they governed to sort of govern themselves somewhat, but Rome reserved rights in capital cases. So the Jews did not have authority to crucify Jesus. But I want you to consider how there were still times that the Jews overstepped their bounds and still killed people and still executed people. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7 what they did to the deacon Stephen? They stoned him. So why would they not just stone Jesus already? It's obviously not because they don't hate him enough to do so. They hate this man. The end of John chapter 8, John wrote, they picked up stones to stone him. 
So why mess with Rome? Why mess with Pilate? Why mess with all of these nighttime trials and bringing in witnesses? Just stone the man already. Look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Behind the cat and mouse struggle of human politics and Jewish religious leaders was the divine plan of God Almighty. His son was not going to be stoned. His son would be crucified, hung, suspended between heaven and earth as the only mediator between God and man. Not even the depths of Jewish hatred would change that. Once the death penalty is on the table, though, the Jews did give Pilate some formal accusations. In Luke chapter 23, Luke describes two charges that they brought up at this point. The first charge was that he, 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 he misleads the nation and he forbids us from paying tribute to Caesar. What was our sermon a few weeks ago? Should we pay taxes or not? What did Jesus say? Show me a coin. Whose image is on that coin? Give Caesar what's Caesar's and give, God's what, uh, give God what's God's. Jesus did not forbid them from paying taxes. That was a flat out lie. The second uh, accusation was that he claimed to be Christ, which meant that he was claiming to be a king. Okay. So with all of that on the table and with the death penalty on the table, Pilate summons Jesus inside and interrogates him. Look at verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 33 through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt or no fault in him. In typical rabbinical style, Jesus answered Pilate's first question with another question, didn't he? Are you a king? Who told you that? <laughs> Are you saying that? Or did others say that about me? And by doing this, Jesus was inviting Pilate to consider Jesus' kingship for himself. Do you accept me as a king? Or is this just hearsay? Now we know, unfortunately, Pilate either just refused to even consider this or he misunderstood or both what type of kingdom Jesus had. This was not a Jewish kingdom. This was not any sort of physical kingdom in this world. It was a spiritual kingdom. Jesus essentially said that his authority did not originate from this world. It originated from God himself. If it were an earthly kingdom, Jesus' followers would have been fighting back Instead, they deserted him, and Jesus rebuked the only one with the guts to fight anyway. We should note 
that even though Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, that doesn't mean it's not active in this world. That doesn't mean it's not powerful in this world. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter in this world. One day, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will rule this very world for 1,000 years. But it's a different kind of kingdom because Jesus's power and authority are not derived from this world. They are rooted in God. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. Pilate didn't care about the implications of Jesus's kingdom, but he did hear Jesus affirming his kingship, right? So in verse 37, so you are a king. And Jesus essentially responded by saying, yes, I'm the king of truth. To which Pilate muttered, what is truth? We don't really know Pilate's motive or expression when he asked, what is truth? Was it a genuine searching question or was it just this dismissive, you know, sarcastic disgust? We don't really know. I sort of lean towards the second because he doesn't stick around and let the king of truth answer. What is truth? And then he goes back out to the crowd. He wasn't ready to accept Jesus' kingship, but he knew Jesus was not guilty of anything. This man's not a threat. He's completely innocent. And so at the end of verse 38, you have the Roman governor of Judea officially and publicly proclaiming the innocence of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? The official governor said, I find no fault in him. Now Luke records that when this happened, the Jews told Pilate, he stirs up the people from Judea all the way to Galilee. And when Pilate heard that he was a Galilean and technically under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Herod was in Jerusalem also at that time and Herod uh, received Jesus as his uh, defendant because Herod hoped to see Jesus perform some miracle. But Jesus is not some sideshow attraction that will perform miracles just because you want to see something fabulous. So he doesn't. He doesn't perform a miracle. He's silent before Herod and his men. And so Herod and his men treat Jesus scornfully. They, they mock him and they, they send him back to Pilate who, believe it or not, will seek to release Jesus. Not only is Pilate aware of Jesus' innocence, he also had the wherewithal to know that the only reason the Jews are bringing him here is because they're jealous about him. They're envious of him. Plus, Pilate's own wife told him, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. I've been suffering in dreams because of him. So Pilate had a plan. Remember, this was the Passover season. And there was a tradition that developed between the Jews and the Romans that during Passover, the Roman governor would release a prisoner. Sort of a show of, you know, good faith and mercy. And so look at John 18, 39 through 40. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, we don't catch it in John's account. He's very brief. But the Jews didn't pull Barabbas' name out of thin air. Pilate gave them the choice. Do you want me to release Jesus or do you want me to release Barabbas, who was this robber? And when you see the word robber, this was not a cat burglar. It's not a petty thief. It's not a pickpocket. This was a terrorist. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. Nobody would dare unleash Barabbas on the crowded streets of Jerusalem during Passover. 
He would be the last prisoner the Jews would want released. Pilate knew they would choose to release Jesus. It was a really a brilliant plan. He's going to release a man that he deems innocent anyway while making it appear like he gave the Jews the choice. Perfect plan. But when he gave them the choice, teacher or terrorist, rabbi or rebel, they chose the unthinkable. That's how much they hated him. But Pilate does not give way just yet. Look at chapter 19. He has Jesus beaten, I think to make him more of a pathetic looking figure and hoping that that would appease the Jews without having to go all the way to a crucifixion. Look at the first six verses of 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Pilate repeated Jesus's innocence two more times in these verses. Yet the crowd would not yield. Look at verse seven through 16. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. The voice that spoke the universe into existence was silent. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate then, uh, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The Jewish religious leaders have stated we have no king, not even God, except Caesar. Matthew's account records that Pilate washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, to which the Jews replied, his blood be on us and our children. 
in about 40 years, give or take, Jerusalem would be ransacked and destroyed by Rome. No more temple. If the Lord allows us next week, we'll look at the crucifixion himself, uh, the crucifixion itself. But what we looked at this morning is equally important for a couple of reasons at least. First, if Jesus had not submitted to this arrest and these unfair trials, they would have never been able to seize him in the first place. They could have never sentenced him in the first place. It is just beyond incredible to consider how the creator of all things allowed his creation to treat him like this. He was the one in control that night. He wasn't overpowered, overtaken, or overwhelmed. He was willing. He was the one that stepped forward and started all of this because he knew what it would lead to. He knew that he was your only hope. And the second significant truth I want you to consider here relates back to those Passovers and those sacrificial lambs. The sacrificial Passover lamb had to be spotless, without blemish. And to ensure this, what the Jews would do is that they would bring the lamb into their home for several days. One Jewish author notes that since the lamb lives inside of your home for a few days, the children of the family fall in love with it. They love it like it's a pet. It also allows you to be close to it and to truly examine it to see if it fits the parameters for being an acceptable sacrifice. You would know if this was a worthy lamb. It was a little bit different once the temple was built where they would go to the temple often and select their lamb. But the lamb had to be spotless. So over the past few days in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of lambs would have been inspected. Were they blameless? Were they spotless? Well, God made his own preparations that year, didn't he? And his lamb was selected from long ago, from before the foundations of the world. And early that morning, the Roman governor Pilate examined God's true Passover lamb and officially said, I find no fault in him. He's blameless. He's spotless. He's pure. He's worthy. He is, this is why John the Baptist could truly claim as Jesus began his ministry, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the only innocent, sinless man ever to die the only sinless man ever who did not deserve death was the very man God chose to die for the sins of all men. He was the only one. Next week, we will look at the crucifixion. And our church decided to observe the Lord's Supper next week. Please prepare your hearts. as we remember the death of our Lord and Savior next week. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I'm praying for you this morning. If you need to talk with me about that, if you have questions about what that is, how to do that, please let me know. 
It's as simple as repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus as your Savior. He's the King of truth and the only one who can rescue you from hell and cleanse you. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, help us to be amazed at the submission of Jesus Christ to what this plan was all the way into eternity past. I pray, Lord, that we will be drawn closer to you and just more and more appreciative and amazed at what Jesus did for us. And if there's someone today who's lost, Lord, I pray for their salvation. Help us to live lives each day that glorify you and that show your love and your grace to others so that they too will be saved. Forgive us of our sins, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.